0: We are currently in a series in Genesis. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. We'll be uh, launching from Genesis 13. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And let me say, uh, as a, a preparation for what we're going to step into today, what I'm going to share with you today is a really important word that is going to land at some different places for different ones of us. For some of you, you'll hear today's message and be able to go, okay. Sounds good. No biggie. I don't think I have a problem with that. And for some, that's going to be the case. But for some of us, it's going to hit us right between the eyes because it's exactly where you live and it's exactly what you struggle with. It's a major issue for you. And if it is, more than most messages that I would share, this one has a great likelihood that it may make you mad or hurt your feelings, and it's not intended to do either of those, but there's going to be a real temptation to either sort of bow up and resist it and say, well, I don't care what the preacher says. He doesn't understand my situation. Or to just live in denial and go, well, that's not true. That's not me. I, I don't do that. So I'm going to ask you To just be really intentional to say, I I want to be teachable today. I always want to be in a position to receive whatever the Lord would say. So, can we agree on that? That we, everybody, including the preacher, we need to be teachable. And we, if we want to get to a better place in life, we've got to be willing to make adjustments. Right? You can't you can't stay where you are and go on with God. You can't stay where you are and get the better and better that God desires. And so, my hope is that today we could all be teachable. And be willing to take a hard look at our lives and our key relationships and adjustments that we might need to make. So here's the beginning point. Every one of us have, it's my guess, that every one of us or nearly every one of us have within our innermost circle of closest relationships at least one person who's really unhealthy. And I'm not talking about diabetes or heart disease. I'm talking about unhealthy in the noggin, unhealthy in their, in their soul. They're, they are emotionally and relationally unhealthy. Would you agree with that? Most of us have somebody close to us who is really unhealthy. And those unhealthy people typically are emotional vampires. They'll just latch on to you and just sort of suck the life out of you if you'll let them. And it is, it is my contention here on the front end that I really do believe that to a large extent much of the quality of your life is going to be tied to how you deal with those one or two relationships with the neediest, most unhealthy people in your life. Because the healthy people around you, they're going to lift you up as much as they bring you down or hopefully even more than they bring you down. They're easy to do life with. It's those unhealthy people and particularly the one or two that are in your inner circle and how you relate to them that to a large extent is going to determine whether your life is good and happy and light or whether it's heavy and you're being just bled dry all the time. So... We're going to look at the example of Abraham where if you're new to freedom or hadn't been here in a little while we're in an eight week series where we're looking at the life of Abraham and in a series that's entitled uh, it all starts with just one talking about how every time God does something significant he starts with one man or one woman and he speaks a word to them gives them a glimpse of what he wants to do and, and, and a movement is birthed out of that Abraham clearly is that man and uh, is one of those men, and, and he that's why he's known as the father of the faith. And last week, as we're following along in the story, we see that though God had picked Abraham and had spoken these incredible promises over him and had given some clear instructions to him, first of all, Abraham almost didn't enter into what God had for him because he tried to bring along some people he wasn't supposed to bring along, and he stopped short of what God had called him to do. But But he finally moved on, entered into what God... Had called him to do initially and so his experience in the blessing of that but we saw last week he takes a detour he leaves what god had called him to do and he he just decides well it just makes good sense i'll go to egypt and and things will be better there and he he got himself almost in a lot of trouble by going to egypt going where god had not led him to go and doing some things where he was just crossing lines he shouldn't have crossed and we saw last week how god drew him back and got him back on course But today, what we're going to see is the person that he took with him, other than his wife Sarah, was his nephew Lot. He was never supposed to have brought Lot along to begin with. Lot was extra baggage. God knew that Lot was going to be a stumbling block for Abraham, but Abraham insisted on bringing him along. So Lot ends up going to Egypt with Abraham. And we said last week, Abraham came out of Egypt and he brought Lot out of Egypt, but he never got Egypt out of Lot. Lot's heart got, he saw some things and he experienced some things and he liked some of what he experienced in Egypt. And for one thing, he got rich in Egypt. And when when they came out, Lot was a changed man and it was not for the better. And so we're going to track along and look at what I believe for Abraham was his most challenging relationship. And that was with this nephew who appears to have been something like a son to Abraham. And yet from the time they come out of Egypt, this relationship that had been so close suddenly begins to look more like this instead of like this. You ever had that happen? Somebody that maybe they're a part of your family or they were your closest friend and you've just been like this. You remember what it was like to just be so close. But with the passing of time, that relationship starts looking more and more like this. Well, we're going to see what happened and how Abraham responded that sets a pattern for us of how we deal with the most unhealthy people in our lives. Now, I've got a lot of story to tell. I'm going to do it in in short order. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version because we're going to cover multiple chapters and I'm not going to read it all to you. But we're going to pick up in chapter 13 in verse 5 where they've just come out of Egypt. They've returned back to the land that God has called them to. So in in Genesis 13, 5, we read, now Lot... Who was moving about with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great and they were not able to stay together. And quarreling, everybody say quarreling, fussing and fighting, quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So here we've got all of these unsaved, ungodly people who are watching the men of God fight with one another. Sounds a little bit like the 21st century, doesn't it? The world watching God's people fight with one another. And so verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, "'Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company, and if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and if you go to the right, I'll go to the left.'" So you follow what Abraham is saying? Enough of this quarreling. I'm sick of this. This can't be how we continue on. We've got to part ways. So you pick the direction you're going to go, and I'm going to go in the other direction. We've got to get some distance between us. Verse 10, Lot looked around, and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of what? It was like Egypt. Egypt. He still longed to go back to Egypt. So he looked for the closest thing to Egypt that he could find. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now let me just say... When we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, when you talk about a sinful city, you know if you, if you hear that phrase, the, the city of sin, I don't know what comes to mind for you. Maybe you think of, of the French Quarter in Bourbon Street in New Orleans or you picture the Strip in Las Vegas or South Beach in Miami. I don't know what you think of as, as a sinful place, but none of those can hold a candle to what we read about in Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they have sunk to depths that are so low that God is going to rain down fire from heaven and wipe them out because of the depth of their sin. We get a little glimpse in Genesis of just how bad this place is. And that's what Lot chooses. Now, I pointed out to you last week, there was this recurring phrase, as Abram enters the promised land and as he comes back into the promised land, that he is in between Bethel and Ai. And that the meanings of, of those two, two names is the house of God and destruction. And it's just such a, an incredible picture that, that Abram and Lot are camped between the house of God and this other place that's, that's called ruin or destruction. And so Abram says to Lot, choose which direction you're going to go. The Old Testament is just so rich with these kinds of pictures for us. And it is certainly a picture of the many of the choices that we make in life where we go, am I going to draw near to God and the people of God, or am I going to go to the place that looks shiny and sexy and fun that ultimately is called ruin and destruction? And so when Abram said, you, you picked your choice, you, you, you picked your, your direction, and Lot goes, hmm, I think I like it over here. Ai, Sodom, Gomorrah, the, the plain around the Jordan. It, it looks so inviting. I think I'd have more fun there. And that's where he goes, and Abram goes in the other direction. And as we read last week, it says, By stages he drew closer and closer to the, to the house of God, to Bethel. And so Lot's gone his direction. Abram is going in the other direction. Verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had parted from him, I want you to notice, it's like a a curtain has been raised again for Abraham. After he he gets some separation between him and Lot, it's like his eyes are open and he gets re-engaged in this thing that God had called him to. So after Lot had parted from him, God says, look around you from where you are to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So... As we conclude that chapter, man, Abraham is in a good place. He is right back on track. He is walking with God. He is engaged in what God has called him to be about and to do. And Lot is wandering further and further from what God had for him. Now we shift gears to chapter 14. And I'm just going to summarize very briefly what happens in chapter 14. Four kings who reign in what is currently a portion of modern-day Iraq... ...decide to invade the Holy Land... ...and they go to war against five kings... ...and the cities under them... ...in the region that Lot has gone to live in. And the four kings defeat those five kings. And they keep them subject for 12 or 13 years... ...and then there's a rebellion... ...where the these guys in the Holy Land... ...try and and overthrow the rulers over them. And so the kings from Iraq have to come back in... ...and once again... You know, bring the fist down on them. And so what happens is, as a result of that, Lot and his family and all of their possessions, along with all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and those other cities, are after they've been defeated, they're being carried away as exiles. And so in chapter 14, we'll just pick up in verse 10, we read, "...now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell unto them." And all the rest fled to the hills, and the four kings seized all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. But a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abraham. And when Abram heard that his relatives had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hoba, north of Damascus. And he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. And then just to sum up what happened in the remainder of the chapter, which, by the way, what we just read is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, four kings who have the armies and the power to defeat five kings and their cities and... Abraham, you can tell, he is now walking in faith. This is a man walking with God, and he has faith and confidence. You remember the the six promises that God has has laid on him? And you remember how the Lord said, Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. The bottom line is, you have protection like you can't imagine. Abraham's learning to walk in that. And and he is realizing that he can project that. You, You know... It's not just a matter of you messing with me, you've messed with my family. You're going to have to answer for that. So he calls out the men that he's trained in his own household, 318. It gives you some sense of, of just how much wealth and power he has amassed in a little bit of time. And so they march out, they track down these kings and their armies, and and they attack them and win a great victory. And now they're bringing back all of the people who were captive all of their goods, and two things happen at the conclusion of this chapter, which is not the point, but I'm going to point them out to you anyway. First of all, they meet a priest of Salem named Melchizedek. Hebrews suggest this is probably Jesus that they're actually meeting. And uh, Abraham immediately gives him a tenth of everything. This is way before the law. This is way before anybody ever heard of a tithe. And yet instinctively he understands In worship to God, I should give him the first tenth of everything that we've just won. And so he gives that in worship. And there's this really, really sweet exchange that happens there. And then in the very next scene, to close out the chapter, the king of Sodom. Now, let that thought sink in for just a moment. The king of the most wicked place that you can imagine. I'm sure he's a fine, upstanding fellow. No, he's not. He is wicked beyond any current leader that we know. And he looks at Abraham, and it's like, Abraham, my man, give me a high five. Good job. Hey, we're we're buds. I tell you what, you keep what you want out of all the people's goods. Yeah, great. You're going to give away what doesn't belong to you in the first place. That's nice of you. Abraham, you just hang on to whatever you want to out of all of their stuff. And Abraham looks him in the eye and says, let's be clear about this. I wouldn't keep a thread. I wouldn't keep one thong of a sandal that comes from you. Nobody's ever going to be able to say that I got rich as a result of you and your generosity. and what he doesn't say is you're pagan. This is a wicked king, and Abraham is not going to be sucked into being his buddy and his partner. And yeah, we'll just split the the goods that actually belongs to these people. Abraham doesn't want any part of that. So, all right, that doesn't have anything to do with the day. But I thought it was pretty cool. So, we're done with chapter 14. I'm going to fast forward over to chapter 18. We'll we'll get back to that in future weeks because we're, we're just tracking along with the lot story. Some years have passed. Lot started out going in the direction of Ai, Sodom, and Gomorrah. With the passing of time, bear in mind, he is a, he's a keeper of flocks. He's, he's a bit of a nomad. These are people who live in tents. Remember, Abraham's going to live the rest of his life in tents. But Lot goes from being a man who takes care of flocks out in tents to being a city dweller, and he comes to live right in the heart of Sodom. Such a wicked place. And in chapter 18, what we discover, and we won't read most of this, I'll just summarize it for you briefly, is that three people come to visit Abraham and his wife Sarah, and they announce, and apparently from the way the scripture reads, it appears that it was Jesus and two angels. It doesn't specifically identify Jesus, but it is the Lord and two angels who are with him. And they've come to communicate to Abraham that even though he's in his late 90s and his wife is in her late 80s, that that the promise is going to be fulfilled, that Sarah's going to get pregnant, she'll get pregnant that year, and by the same time next year she'll have a baby, and this is going to be the child of promise. Well, at the conclusion of that whole dialogue, the three are about to leave, and they stop, and the Lord Jesus says to Abraham, I shouldn't withhold from you what I'm about to go and do. It's like we're really close. I mean, it's really a neat picture that the Lord's saying, I have such a bond with you that I don't want to do something without telling you what I'm about to do. So let me tell you what I'm about to go do in Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities on the plain. I'm about to rain down destruction on that place called destruction. And the wheels begin to just spin in Abraham's mind. He's thinking, oh my goodness, my family's there, Lot's there, his wife is there, their, their daughters are there. What can I say? What can I do? And so Abraham begins to intercede on their behalf. My Lord, what if, what if there were 50 righteous people in those cities? Is there any chance that you would stay your hand, that you would withhold your wrath if there were 50 righteous people and God said, I, I'd be willing to... To not rain down judgment on them if there were 50 righteous people. Thank you. Thank you for that. And then Abram says, well, I don't want to, don't want to push the point too much, but what if they were what if they were 45? The Lord said, I'd, I'd with hand, with, withhold my hand for 45. I don't want to push it too hard, Lord, but what if there were 30? He says, I'd, I'd stop for 30. I hate to press the point, but what if they were 20? I wouldn't do it if they were 20. Lord, if I could just ask one more time. What if there were ten? I, I can only imagine that Abraham started by thinking, well, you know, Lot's there. And, I'm, I mean, surely Lot is, is living out what I've taught him. And surely he's influencing the people around him. Surely he's reached some people. And the more that he thinks about it, it's like, I bet he hadn't reached 50. I bet he hadn't reached 45. I bet he hadn't reached 30. Finally, he gets down. What, what if there's just ten? I'd, I'd stop it for ten. And with that, the discussion is over. It's interesting to note, Jesus doesn't go to Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels do. Jesus doesn't step into that place. And what happens there is sickening. And it shows you how far Lot has gotten off course because when the angels go there, Lot welcomes them in his house, but the people are so wicked. They've seen these angels who are appearing as, as human men, and they come as a mob banging on Lot's door and saying, give us those two men. We saw them go in there and we want to have sex with them. Send them out to us and Lot. This will just show you how far off course he's gotten. he's saying "No, no, no. It wouldn't be proper for me to hand these men over to you. They're my guests. But I have two virgin daughters. I'll give you them, so that you can do with them what you want to." That—that's how far off course he's gotten. Now, just to fast forward to the end, because of God listening to Abraham and Abraham's intercession, and because of God's mercy. Lot and his two daughters are going to be saved as a result of, of what's happened there. But it's, it's really a sad conclusion to the whole story. We, we don't have time to get into that today. But we'll, we'll just draw a line and pause there now to press into what we're going to talk about for today. For Abraham, Lot was that family member that he loved dearly, that was so close to him. But something had changed in his heart and in his mind And instead of them walking side by side together in the same direction, they had gotten at cross-purposes with each other. And the result was that they were in conflict and the people who were under them were constantly in conflict. And the thing that began to define every day of their lives was tension, stress, and conflict. Some of you can identify with that. Because somebody very close to you Somebody that you would love to just be, just arm in arm with, marching in the same direction. And maybe there was a time when that was the case. They're they're not like that with you. They're more like this with you now. And it's causing terrible stress and strain on you. And though you may not realize it, for some in the room and some watching and listening online right now, for some... It is sucking the life out of your marriage or out of your other key relationships because you are pouring so much thought, time, energy, money into that one unhealthy person and that one unhealthy relationship that you don't realize you're bleeding dry the other key relationships in your life. Some listening to me today need to take a step back and realize I'm killing my marriage or I'm depriving my children because of what this one person, what this one relationship is doing to me. And it had that same potential for Abraham and the evidence of that is the fact that it was only when he got separated from Lot that immediately, he's suddenly God shows up in his life and suddenly they're right back on track and God's going, Now, let's get back to the business of giving you this land and you tackling this thing that I've called you up to. It will pull you away from your calling. It will keep you from walking in the ministry that God has for you and it will, it will diminish, if not destroy, the most important relationships in your life if you don't recognize what is happening ...in that one most unhealthy relationship in your life. Are you with me? Haven't checked out yet, have you? This is important. Abraham models for us three things that are important to realize as we learn to navigate the most challenging relationships that we have in life. So, the message this week, I struggled with what to call it. So, on my page, it's got several titles... I settled on dealing with unhealthy people, but uh, one of the other titles was When Helping Really Hurts. We'll we'll talk about this today under the heading of Three Keys to Staying Healthy and Helpful. The first one that Abraham models for us is this, and this is the one that if I'm talking to you today, if the crosshairs really are on you, this is the one you're going to want to resist. This is the one you are not going to instinctively want to do, and it is this. You must set clear boundaries to create healthy separation with the most unhealthy person in your life. It doesn't mean that you're. We're not saying write them off, divorce and run from them, just get as far from them as you can. But we're talking about setting healthy boundary lines, just as Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He looked at Lot and he said, You take your choice of any section of land you want, but we will separate. We have got to get some space between us. I will never forget at a time in the past when... I was struggling with a difficult relationship and I didn't realize at the time it was just beginning to dawn on me how much that relationship was just sucking the life and the joy out of me. And I'm just realizing every day of my life I'm spending so much time thinking about this and wrestling with what should I do and how can I help and I don't want to get up, give up on it. And a dear African friend who was talking to me about this situation spoke truth to me and he used an African proverb to to speak into that situation he said brother what we would say about your situation in Africa is this the sky is too wide for two birds to collide you need to let (laughs) you need to let this loved one go the world is too big for the two of you to constantly be so close that you are at odds all the time let him go The sky is too wide. Over and over. He just kept saying it over and over. Brother, the sky is too wide for these two birds to collide. Some of you need to let that sink in. And you need to let somebody go have their own space. You you choose where you're going to go. But go. Setting boundaries many times is going to mean that somebody who is currently under your roof stops being under your roof. Let me say that again. Some of us have got somebody living at our house that does not need to live at our house. Now, if your most difficult person is 13 years old, you probably don't get to apply this to them. You're probably going to have to deal with them for five more years. And God bless you, parents of teenagers. There is not a book that's going to tell you the right way to do it. James Dobson's got it right when he says, you just figure out how to survive until they're grown. There is no master plan. The truth is, most of us, our issues are not, most of us in this room, we're not bogged down because of children that are still children. We're bogged down because of an adult child, an adult sibling, a parent, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a very close friend. That's in a really unhealthy place. And the first step. Toward you getting healthy. And positioning them. To have a better chance of eventually getting healthy. Is you setting some healthy boundaries. Now. If we tried to name off. The kinds of issues that would describe. The the type of decision making. And lifestyle that sort of defines. What made a person that you love. Unhealthy. It would be a long list. But. Just to give some examples, we're, we're talking about the people in our lives who maybe it's some kind of addiction that has really gotten them off course. It, it may be substance abuse, it may be drugs or alcohol. It, it may be an addiction to spending or to gambling. It may be a sexual addiction that has taken them to some really, really unhealthy places. But it, it may be other issues. I mean, let's just tell the truth. I mean, some of the unhealthy people in our lives... They don't have mental issues. Some of them are just eaten up with a terrible case of laziness. And, And the thing that makes them unhealthy is they're not willing to stick with a job. And it's the reason that they live under your roof. Because they have not been willing to do what it takes to stick with it and to earn a living and to be able to pay for their own place and their own food and their own vehicle. And so they're sucking you dry. And now it's straining your lifestyle. It's straining your ability to be generous. It's straining your ability to provide for the people that you should provide for because there's a mooch under your roof. Somebody identify with what I'm talking about? And I mean, we could just go on and on. The different kinds of choices. Some of the broken people in our lives, the thing that's broken about them is their picker. They've got a broken picker. They don't know how to pick friends. they Most of all, they don't know how to pick romantic relationships. They always pick losers. They pick unhealthy people. They pick destructive people. And they get sucked into these horrible relationships. And it just sucks them down the drain. But they've got one hand latched onto them and one hand latched onto you. And you won't let go because you want to save them. I'm not talking down to you. Nobody in this room has struggled more with a savior complex than your preacher. I want to save the world. And it's taken me to some bad places in the past because I, I feel like I'm supposed to save everybody. And I'll hold on to people in the worst situation because Jesus wants me to save them. And some of the worst choices I've made in my life were in the name of saving people. I want to tell you, this world only has one Savior and His name is Jesus. And the rest of us who are trying to save the world will frequently love people to death our help winds up hurting them because we try and take the place of Jesus. And instead of saving them, what we do is we put a pillow under them every time they are about to have an opportunity to hit rock bottom and actually experience some pain and difficulty that might cause them to turn to Jesus. But we're like, no, we don't want them to get hurt. We don't want them to go without We don't want them to be without a home, without anything to eat. I want to tell you, the father of the prodigal son loved his son enough to let him go until he was broke. He had nothing to eat and no place to stay. And it says, finally, when he was so starved in a time of famine that what the pigs were eating started looking good to him, the scripture says, Jesus says, that is when he came to his senses. We better hear that, church. Some of us have been loving our kids, our siblings, our broken parents to death. We keep bailing them out. We keep running in to put a pillow under them so they don't land hard. We need to love them enough to step back and say, Jesus, they belong to you before they ever belong to me. I trust you to know how to take care of them. I'm going to quit saving them. We've got to create some separation. When we do that, healthy boundaries will do a couple of things. They will clarify what is my responsibility and what is your responsibility. That's a big deal, to recognize what is their responsibility. The Scripture gets real clear on this. I mean, for those who want to just mooch and, and you know, sponge off of us, and, and let's just get honest about this. When somebody is an adult and they are not physically disabled, they're not I gotta slow down here because I don't I'll get so politically incorrect I'll get in bad trouble, but they are not mentally challenged to the extent that they cannot hold down a job. They better be working and not sucking you dry. The scripture says he who does not work does not what? They don't eat. We are violating the principles of Scripture by making sure that those that we love never have to, to work or suffer any consequences. I'll never forget Betty Hickson. She was my 12th grade homeroom teacher. And she told us again and again, whenever anyone, and she, she would say it specifically of the government, she so said, when the government takes away your right to fail, it has robbed you of one of your most important rights in life. When anyone takes away another person's right to fail, they have robbed them of one of the greatest motivators in life. You go home and chew on that one because there's a lot of truth in that. When you realize, if I don't work hard, I'm going to go without, that becomes a great motivator. When we set boundaries, it helps us to realize what's my responsibility and what's yours It's an old pastor. I'm sure he's been in heaven a long time at this point. But I encountered him as a young man. And uh, man, he, he was, he had learned some things in life and he didn't apologize for how he communicated them. He was a bit rough. But um, one of the things that I still remember to this day that stood out was, when he would encounter people in his church, and, and there was a time when he pastored the largest Baptist church in America. That's saying a lot. It was a massive church that he pastored. And he said, you know, people are always coming. They want to talk to me and tell me about their problems. And, and I'm not saying this should be the rule, but there is a, a good, healthy principle behind this. And he said, I just set a principle that I live by. I started years ago and lived by it. And he said, I, I ask people in the front end when they come and they want to throw up all of their problems and woes onto me and want me to help them solve them, he said, I always start by asking them some basic questions. Have you been to to worship with us for the past six weeks? Have you been in Sunday school for the past six weeks? And have you spent time in prayer and personal Bible study each day for the past six weeks? And he said, you know, pretty much universally the answer is no, no, no. And he, he will consistently say, well, before I'll sit down and do counseling with you, you do that for six weeks and then we'll talk. Because I'm not going to work harder on your problem than you do. When you aren't willing to do what you can do to position yourself to receive grace from God and to get a healthy perspective, don't expect me to come in and make you feel better. You do what you can do and then we'll sit down and talk. Okay, I'm not quite that legalistic, but I have learned at times. I'll sit down with people in counseling, and they want to just come back again and again and just tell me how terrible life is. And I'll just call time out and say, I'm not talking to you again. I have not seen you at church. You haven't been in Celebrate Recovery. You're not in a small group. And until you take those steps, we're not talking again. You do those things, and we'll talk again. I love you enough. I'll listen one time, but if you won't start taking responsibility for your part, don't waste my time. That's not for lack of love. I can't make up for what you won't do. And neither can you. So we need to set some clear boundaries about what we've each got to own in this. And I know some of us are going, but but what if my boundaries lead to my loved one going in the wrong direction? Where did Lot go? He went in the wrong direction. Where did the son of the, the, the prodigal son, where did he go when the father handed him the cash? He went in the wrong direction. You've got to be willing to let them go for however long it takes. And some of us are going, yeah, but I don't want to lose my influence in their life. It doesn't mean you've lost all the influence in your life to set healthy boundaries. What you will lose is control. And ultimately, that's what eats at us. We say we don't want to lose positive influence, but what we don't want to lose is control. Amen? I know this ain't going to get a lot of amens. (laughs) You can just say, oh me, if you need to. Second thing we'll learn from Abraham. Extreme circumstances may require a... Everybody say a. May require a radical intervention to help those that we love. The most important word in that sentence is a, because that would indicate one. I want to be very clear. Abraham models for us that there can be a time in the life of your loved one when things are so bad, when they are in such bondage. I mean, you know, we'll use a phrase like, oh, they just got carried away. Well, I want to tell you, that literally happened to, to, to Lot. He went to a bad place and he got carried away. He literally, we talk about people being in bondage. He was in bondage, carried away, and he could not save himself. There can be a time when somebody that you love is so in bondage, they have been so carried away by their bad decisions, a bad relationship, an addiction, and they are so far gone that you realize that without some type of of intervention for them, there's probably no hope that they could break free. So there may be a time... Just as there was one time in Lot's life where somebody else has to intervene and do what they cannot do for themselves. And Abraham came rushing, seeking to rescue Lot. And in the moment, he did. It's interesting to go back and reread that. When Abraham heard that his, his nephew had been carried away and was in bondage, he, it says he immediately called the family together. It's a picture of an intervention about to happen, isn't it? What shall we do? And they realize we're going to have to intervene and, and pull him out. I don't know about you, I've been a part of some interventions before. I've been a part of intervention within the family. I've been a part of interventions with other people. They aren't fun. And honestly, in my experience, they oftentimes are not fruitful long-term. They will frequently... And, and if done well, they will bring about an opportunity for a life to, to change direction. And in the short run, they do appear to save the day. And sometimes they will help a person get to a place that they have a heart change and they begin to move in another direction. Unfortunately, what we see happening with Lot is what many of us have experienced in life. And that is when you step in and you do the hard thing and you... You sort of intervene and sort of save the day and give the person an opportunity now to make a change. Maybe maybe you pulled them out of where they were and you paid for them to go to rehab. And they got clean and they got sober for a time. So many of us have experienced the heartbreak of seeing that only last for a season. You stepped in and you spoke to an unhealthy relationship that maybe had had become violent or, or destructive, and you help them get out of a situation that they didn't have the courage or the strength or feel safe enough to step out of it, and you help them get free, and you stood in the gap, and you said, don't you come near this person again. I'll have you locked up if you do. You do the hard thing. You take a risk, and you get them in a safe place, and for a little while, they may curse you, but but then they start thanking you and saying, oh, I'm so glad to be free from that. It feels so good. But here's the hard truth, that most of the time... Doesn't end up well because they wind up either going back to that relationship or going to one that looks just like it. You usually can't save other people. I'm not suggesting that you should never try. I've, I've been in that situation multiple times where we've helped to pull people out where they couldn't get themselves out. And I have seen it at times be the turning point that lasted. But other times it won't. Here are some things that I want to just point out to you about rescuing people. Interventions like this. The first one is this. Rescue as a pattern of helping. That means you do it over and over and over for the same person. Always evolves into unhealthy enabling. The phrase codependent enabler tragically defines or describes way too many people in the church. Somewhere along the way, we've been sort of brainwashed to think that if I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to be like Jesus, which means I just always forgive and I always help. And we sort of lose sight of the fact that Jesus is, is always willing to forgive where there's repentance. And he's always willing to help. But he's also the one who's willing to look you in the eye and speak the truth and say, now go leave your life of sin. Don't return to that relationship. That's not OK. I won't support that. When we rescue again and again, we are no longer helping them. We are enabling them to continue to live an unhealthy life. That's when we begin. That's when helping becomes hurting. That's when we are are enabling a lifestyle that's destructive. We help them to stay addicts. We help them to stay lazy or needy or dependent. Second thing we'll say is this: those who have been repeatedly rescued will usually return to their unhealthy habits. That's why. Not doing this again and again is a better idea. Choosing not to. Healthy intervention must include speaking truth candidly and defining a path for recovery. I would suggest you do this in writing. In the different situations where I've been a part of of being involved in intervention, and when I say intervention, a lot of times this is not just a sit-down conversation for an hour. A lot of the interventions that I've been a part of have involved saying for a season... We're going to bring you into our house. And you're going to live with us. But that's going to be for a defined season of time. And while you're here, these are going to be the boundaries. These are the things that will not happen while you're under our roof. And these are the things that absolutely will happen while you're under our roof. And that always involves things like you will be in church. You will be in Celebrate Recovery. You, you will be working a job within this amount of time. You will be you'll set up a savings account. You will be saving money toward where you're going to go or else you're going to be paying us rent and we're going to bank that money. And when you've done faithfully what you're supposed to do, that money can be used as your first and last month's rent on the place that you're going to go to in 60 days because you're moving out of here. Because we're a transitional spot for you. But these are the things that will happen and failure to live up to these things will mean that what we're currently doing ends. And we will sit down every week and review how you're doing with the things that we're talking about here. Intervention isn't just a one-time thing where we snap our fingers and suddenly they're all better. We're going to have to have some clear guidelines, some clear boundaries, some speaking of truth. This is what has to be addressed. We're not just here to make your life more comfortable. We're here to help you get some clarity, get right with God, and get moving in the right direction. And if that's not what you're clearly doing, then we're going to step back and say, Best of luck to you. You're not going to continue to do what you've been doing and and be here with us. Are you with me? It's getting pretty serious. Hang on, we're getting close. Final piece we'll say, just never work harder on somebody else's problem than they do. That brings us to the third and final thing that we'll say from Abraham's example. And that is to recognize that intercession is our most powerful tool to bring about life change. When we get to chapter 18, Lot's just gotten deeper and deeper into living the life of Sodom. And the thing that we see from Abraham is not that he's running into rescue, it's not that he's sending a monthly check to make sure that, that Lot's got a comfortable home to live in in Sodom. The only thing that, that we find Abraham doing is interceding for Lot, on behalf of Lot, before Jesus. Asking, what he's doing is he's asking for mercy. Not long ago, Jackie and I were, found ourselves just just kind of in a moment of time, thrust back into a situation that that was kind of old familiar territory. Many of you know what this feels like when you've sort of ridden the roller coaster with a loved one. You go through seasons that are high crisis and high tension and things will get better for a while. And then, it, So that, this was one of those moments where as a result of a single phone call, suddenly we're we're back on the roller coaster and, we, and it's suddenly feeling very stressful and, and we're just, we're talking through and wrestling with what do we do and we're, or we're thinking about just kind of the whole range of, of different things to, to intervene, to, to help, to try and rock the world of, of the loved one that we're suddenly so burdened for again. But we realized that we're just sort of all over the page and just unclear as to what we need to do. And so we looked at each other and said, you know what, we need to just stop right now. As we're thinking about all these things that we could do, we need to just stop and pray and ask God, what are you saying right now and what does our role need to be? It's so funny to me. I've been in church all my life, and yet I've spent most of my life thinking, well, that wouldn't help a whole lot because it would probably take six months to ever hear back from God on that. You know, it's just so... Weird how messed up my thinking was Like I imagine that God had this big backlog On answering prayers so Don't have time to wait for that It might take God months to get back with us So stupid So many times if we'll just ask And shut up for five minutes he'll, That he'll answer So we, we both stopped We stopped talking And we both just got still and quiet And just asking the Lord to speak And, and by the way when you do this You've got to give room for him to speak However he wants to he may give a word. He may give a picture. I mean, it's actually very interesting in that, just to give you this as an example. Because it was one of those times we both sat there, for, I don't know, five minutes listening, maybe a little longer than that. And um, in that particular instance, God gave me something really clear. And Jackie went, I didn't really get a lot sitting here. But here's what the Lord did do. I mean, it's really sweet. Because I think she was probably feeling you were probably feeling a little frustrated in the moment, weren't you, that, that it was like i don 't think I got anything, and within what the, within the hour, a friend who had no earthly idea what had transpired that afternoon, reached out, called or texted or emailed you, texted and said, "The Lord just spoke to me a word about this specific loved one in your life and gave me a scripture to share with you. Now tell me God isn't faithful." To answer, you can't say how he's going to answer. I, I, God gave me a word in, the, in terms of a picture, and, God, and Jackie in that moment, and I felt the same way at times that she felt. She's like, well, that's kind of kind of weird that he didn't give me anything. Oh, he had something. He was just going to make it so clear. He was going to give it to somebody else to text it and say, here's what God said about your situation. And just to make it clear that it's from the Lord, I'm going to give them the name of the person and a word for them. So God spoke to her that way. But I want to share with you the picture that God gave me because I think it actually speaks to what we're talking about right now. Now, I don't know if you get weirded out about this kind of stuff. You shouldn't. When God speaks, he speaks many times at the level of our thoughts. And for me, he'll very frequently speak in pictures or, or even moving pictures that a lot of times I won't have a clue what it means. And I'll just have to go, OK, God, I see that. But what is that about? So God gave me a picture and it was of me and Jackie and we're up on a high plane up on a cliff there's a drop-off, a long drop-off to a low plane. It was very clear that the two of us are on the high plane and our loved one is unseen. We knew that that this person was on the low ground down below us. And there was in front of us what looked like a gigantic crossbow type of apparatus. And we are feeding arrows into this thing that are being launched again and again. But it's not arrows like you would pull out of a quiver. They are huge. They're like... Almost the size of light poles, sharpened at the end, that are being loaded into this crossbow and being fired again and again. And it felt a little bit weird seeing this because it's like I knew that our loved one was down below, and it's like we're not trying to kill him, God. We I don't. I don't think. But we're just firing again and again these gigantic telephone pole size arrows. And we can't see where they're landing. But then in a moment of time, God took us to the edge to be able to look over and to see the plane down below. And our loved one is right in the middle of where we've been firing. And it wasn't that any of those gigantic arrows were being fired at him, but it looked like a gigantic pincushion that every one of those huge arrows had landed like light poles and just completely surrounded him and made just a gigantic hedge of protection around him, protecting him from many of the greatest dangers that... And threats that wanted to get to him. And I suddenly knew exactly what God was saying in that. What I'm calling you to do right now is to just pray. And don't you think that your prayers are just some puny little arrows that you're firing in his direction. That when you pray, you're firing light pole size barriers. That they may not change the heart of your loved one in that moment of time. But at the very least... You are creating a hedge of protection around him to give room for God to work in time on the one that you love. And I share that with you because some of us need to be reminded of the power and effect of our prayers. That sometimes we feel like, well, I don't guess I can do anything but pray. I want to tell you, when you pray, you're firing light pole size arrows in the direction of that, that one that you love. And no, most of the time God is not going to violate the will of the one that you love to make them do the right thing, but praying for them, holding them before God so that He can protect them from some of the most destructive things that could have happened to them will make all the difference because it will give them time and space for God to work. Everything didn't work out beautifully for Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham interceded and Lot and his two daughters were saved. They were spared. What we're talking about today, it is a difficult matter because the people for many of us that we're talking about are people that we love so dearly. It's hard to even want to joke about any of this because the reality is our hearts have broken a thousand times over for the, the people that we're talking about. We long to see them healthy, and right with God, and making good choices, to see them clean, to see them in good, life-giving relationships, and the truth be told, and we're not about to do this, but if we were to stand and tell the stories of the people that we're so burdened for and have been so tangled up with and heartbroken over, they've gotten into awful relationships that are, that are destroying them. They've, they've gotten pulled into things that are just choking the life out of them and we would give our right arms to see them get free happy and healthy and walking with God in order for that to happen for some of us we're going to have to draw some lines and set some healthy boundaries I'm going to go one step further in addressing that and say this to you if when you look at your most troubling relationship if you realize I probably have become one of those codependent enablers. Yes, I have a long-term history of trying to save them. I've probably overdone the part of, of trying to rescue them. If that's your story, I'm just going to tell you honestly, you're probably not going to change your pattern of behavior. You're not going to change your track record because you heard this sermon today. That is not going to be enough. In your small group this week, it's going to get even more personal about this. That is not going to do the trick for you, for for those of us who struggle the most. It's probably going to require you reaching out and getting help from at least one other person who is going to help you to make decisions and set boundaries and hold you accountable. It's part of the value of CR. CR helps a great deal with codependent enabling behavior because it pairs you with a sponsor who's going to hold you accountable and help you see clearly what are the healthy boundaries that I need to put into place and am I sticking to my boundaries? We're going to have to set some boundaries. We're going to have to quit trying to constantly rescue. There may be some of us that God speaks to and says, you've got to have the courage to do an intervention. And if that's the case, you better find some some reinforcements, some people who are going to stand with you in that. But one of the healthiest things that we can do right now is to recommit ourselves to constantly pray for, constantly fire those arrows on behalf of, of those that we love, and to trust that God hears and responds when we pray in faith. And that's what I'd like for us to do right now. Would you just bow with me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer? If you're watching or listening online, don't let distance and time create a barrier. Would you just bow with us in prayer right now? And I just want to invite you to take that person, that relationship, that has so burdened your heart the most and to hold it before God in prayer. And as a beginning point, before you begin to pray for that person, I want you to pray for yourself first. Would you just ask the Lord to give you a bit of clarity about where you stand and about what your responsibilities are? Maybe you realize, I've been operating out of guilt. I've been owning stuff in this that that I don't need to own. And maybe there's some things that you need to ask forgiveness for just to, to get to a healthy place in this. But would you just acknowledge to God, Lord, I realize this is your child. This is somebody that you love and that Jesus, you desire to save. And I'm not going to try and be their savior. I'm going to be their friend or their parent or their their child but I'm not going to be their savior but I am going to hold them before you we don't take a lot of quiet time in worship we need to change that But I want us to just take a quiet moment now I just want to give you time and space to hold that person before God and here's what I want to ask you to do for the next 60 seconds you don't talk to God about them just in your mind and in your heart, you just let them be before God. And you just listen and see if God has anything to say. See if He shows you anything or if He tells you anything. Because we just are still and quiet in His presence. Father, we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to do a work in the lives of each one of the loved ones that we've been holding before you now. We pray for healed hearts. We pray for people to be saved. We pray for addictions to be broken. Unhealthy relationships to be broken or changed. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that you would do a healing work in our hearts. Many of us have become sick because we have held so closely to people around us who are unhealthy. And I pray for healing in our hearts. Some of us have to repent of needing to be in control and failing to trust you to be a father to those that we love. Lord, would you help us to trust you? Forgive us for the times when we have tried to be God in the lives of those that we love. I pray that you do a healing work among us today. We open ourselves up to you and what you want to say and do in our lives, and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.